Either way is fine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Let me read a verse for you. First Chronicles 11.4. This is in the passage about David's mighty men. So it just talked about the first one. This is the second one. Next to him was Eliezer, son of Dodai, the Ahoite, one of the three mighty men. He was with David at Pastamim when the Philistines gathered there for battle. At a place where there was a field full of barley, the troops fled from the Philistines. But they took their stand in the middle of the field. They defended it and struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought about a great victory. I'm going to get to that verse at the very end of this sermon. And um, this, this is, the, I'm going to do this sort of like state of the church vision for the year sermon today. Um, which actually this is a pretty good time to do it because um, I heard that like last week was sort of the best I've done so far. So this week was bound to be worse. So it might as well be this. And um, so I just want to apologize. If you're a visitor, you just came on the wrong Sunday. So just come back next week, and it'll be different and less aggressive and all that. Okay, so there. There is a customary practice, particularly at larger churches, to about annually have sort of a state of the church sermon or like a year vision sermon. Like, here's the vision for this year. We're going to do that. And I'm from a cynical generation where we look at people who do that, and we go— get a different sweater. You know, like, that's just kind of our attitude. And so the whole thing is a little cliched, and, but, but, you know, I'm in charge now, and now I realize it's necessary. <laughs> so uh, even though I don't really like the idea, I feel like it's important to have um, a time where we talk about how things are going as a family, together as a local church, and, um, and also to talk about what are we going to do this year? Um, because, you know, you can't do everything every year. We're bound to have focuses, and um, we're going to have to determine what they are. So, there it is. So, yeah. So, what I want to—here, let me make this all work. Um, That's—okay. There's a couple things I want to say. The first thing is I want to say something about sort of the state of the church, like how we're doing as High Point Church. And um, it's really easy to get really self-important about things— doing okay, but I really feel like when you look at the things that you can look at, and you talk to people around the church, as the elders and I and our staff have been doing, I think one thing I can say positively without being too arrogant or self-important is that it really feels like as a, as a church family, we're kind of turning a corner. You know, if, if, you know, we've been, Without, long before I got here, the church had spent years slowing down the descent. Just, but it, it really feels like the plane is like just, just turning and picking up a, a little bit. And it's, it's kind of nice to be getting further away from the ground if you're trying to fly. I mean, it's a good feeling. And I, and I, think, I don't think it's self-important or arrogant to just go, to just be glad about that. And I'm, I'm the kind of guy that people complain who isn't encouraging enough. Like, I'm the guy who has to artificially be encouraging because otherwise everybody in my life will hate me. And so I don't really know how to celebrate things. And so here's, here, I, so here's what I would say. Um, in all the stuff that we can actually measure, 
things seem to be going well. Uh, in the last six months, um, for about three years, we were bumping along attendance-wise at about 350. Last year, we had a big pickup. We went from 351 to 353, so that was good. Um, but in the last six months, our average has been about 420. So there's, you know, about 70 people, and most new people only come about twice a month. So there's really more like 150 new people coming every other week. And, um, and that's kind of cool. Now here's the thing, and, and other things, we're not doing anything different. We're just having church. We haven't done some kind of whatever, dog and pony show. I mean, all we're doing is singing to Jesus and then trying to preach the Bible, and that's really all. Um, but one of the things that's, that's more subjective in relationship to attendance that has been encouraging is I, I've heard from a number of people, and I've heard rumors come back to me from a number of people, where people have said, listen, I've loved this church for years, and I've been committed to this church for years, but recently it's gotten to the point where I'm excited about inviting people to my church again. And that's, that's the only way to live, man. I mean, you, that is the kind of feeling that you want to have. And, um, I'm really glad to have heard that from people. I th- we've got a group of about 40 new members. Um, the, uh, the, the Shrocks and the Cusos are just the front end of that. We've had four baptisms, and at the congregational meeting on the 30th, we're going to have about 10 more. So there's, there's some really neat stuff like that. If you look at our adult Bible fellowships or second-hour studies, um, depending on how you count, and I don't have real good numbers on this, but it's either doubled or tripled in the last six months. Which is really important because it's, it's just as important as the attendance change, frankly. Because when people commit themselves to a second hour of study, it, it really more like triples or quadruples their actual spiritual growth. A lot of people think it's, oh, if I go to, if I go to church every week, and, but then I start going to, you know, a second hour like Sunday school gig, and I start studying there, that might double. No, it doesn't double. It triples or quadruples your spiritual growth. There's a synergy between the two. And when you go to the, the Bible studies, a lot of times you have to actually do some work yourself. So, right, you know, there's the old saying, you only remember 5% of what you hear, but if you read it and talk about it, and work, you remember a lot more, and it changes you a lot more. So second-hour study, the idea that we've doubled or tripled the number of people going to that, that's a big deal. In some ways, it's bigger than even attendance increase. And then also, in terms of money, because, like, the fact is, is that if we don't make budget, we just— we're just going to go to another church. <laughs> I, mean, we're gonna, I mean, we're not a church that has some kind of endowment. If we don't, we don't make budget, we close the doors. And so um, in the, over the last year, the total giving to date for last year up until this point was 589,736. And the year to date so far this year is 654,431, which is the difference of 64K. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And so we've gone from, I mean, last, to put this in perspective, last year, on January 3rd, if you looked in your bulletin, you saw that as a church, we were $52,000 behind budget already halfway through the year. Because our fiscal year is June to July. Or June—that'd be great, a one-month fiscal year. It, it's July—I guess July to June or something like that. Anyway, the point is, is that, like, this is that December's the halfway mark. It's not the end. And so we were—it we, was 52 and growing, doubling, right? So <clears throat> to be— um, to be just a little high in bu- budgeted giving, but to look at the year in giving and knowing that really we're $23,000 ahead total, all told, it's pretty sweet. It's, pretty, it's just pretty sweet. Now, um, <clears throat> the reason I say turn a corner is, listen, friends, we are so not out of the woods. You know, we take, we take that, um, that soundboard in to get fixed about every month. Just about every week, John's like, soundboard's broken again. I don't know what we're going to do, <laughs> you know? And, um, you know, we, we're not paying our, our building depreciation. 
So we're not saving in relationship to the buildings aging over time. So, so we've got, we've got five, 10, and 20-year problems that are still coming down the pike because we're like the average American middle-class family. We have more house than we can afford, right? We, we, we bought this house when we were a bigger church, right? And then our income decreased because our family shrunk, and now we've got a mortgage— bigger than our income, right? And so the real—I mean, I, I, told, I still believe this, and I told the elders when I got here. I said the, the answer is not 200,000 more dollars. It's 250 more people, right? Um, but here's the thing I want to say about that in relationship to attendance. Um, please don't invite people to this church who go to Bible-believing churches and gospel-believing churches. Um, the reason, one of the reasons I was psyched about coming to High Point Church when, um, when you, you all invited me was that I stink at building buildings. There's some pastors that just love being on building committees, and they love tackling, like, five million dollars in debt, and, like, making mugs, and, like, you know, animating videos, and the whole gig. And I hate it. I mean, I've been through them. I I mean, we did one—we did, like, a six million dollar one at Lynn Haven when I was there, and we did the whole dog and pony show, and it worked great, and I hate it. It's what I'm worst at. And what I loved about High Point Church was that it was half empty. That was my—that's my favorite—that was my favorite thing about coming here, because I said, I don't have to do the thing I'm worst at, and we can lead hundreds of people to Jesus and not have to build a square foot. This is awesome. So <clears throat> I'm really psyched about the buzz that everybody's kind of creating about church. They're like, listen, we're turning a corner. We're doing some new stuff. We're really focusing on the scriptures, and, and I'm—and please continue to create that buzz and so on. Um, but— Let's make sure we, we're mindful of who we create that buzz with and who we invite. Because let's steward this empty space like we should. By not emptying out some other church, some other churches, but by leading our neighbors who don't know Jesus to faith. Can we agree on that? Okay, good. Good. But here's the thing. There's lots of stuff we can say about lots of stuff. But the bottom line is, we should be glad about this, you know? Like, yeah, there's 70 more people coming. Do we lead 70 people to Jesus? No. But when Washington won um, the Battle of the Cross in the Delaware, and over the next month, 5,000 more people joined the, the, the Continental Army, he hadn't actually accomplished anything yet, but he had more guns to do it with. And so that was good. And that's kind of the situation we're in. Have we, have we net accomplished anything in the kingdom of God in the last six months? Well— there's Jim, right? I mean, there's, there's some, and, and we don't know what kind of spiritual growth is happening either. Like just this week, I was in somebody's basement who is fixing it up for somebody to live there because I went and said in some sermon, who's your bag lady? Who's the person God has brought into your life to, to show you what your real character is? And they invited them to live with them, to help them. That's, that's net gain in the kingdom, right? So there is some, but the good news is, is that we, we just have some more troops. So now there's responsibility, right? How are we now going to deploy ourselves and live our lives and so create whatever so that we actually do something with the corner we're turning? Does that make sense? But, see, I'm all—see, that's just how I am. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm like that. Um, right now, we should just be glad. And, and we don't need to be proud because— Trying to, trying to figure out who's responsible for what is just a losing proposition. Um, pastors and worship teams and elders and staff, 
they get too, we get too much credit when things go well and too much blame when things, things go bad. And you just, you never know by what providence things happen. Even the people who would be the villains of the story, there's people all over the sanctuary that they led to Christ. And so there's no sense in, in fooling with how we got here. We need to just enjoy that we are here. And be glad that God has brought us to this point. And be hopeful about what, where he's bringing us in the near future. Right? Okay. <clears throat> so that's all the celebrating I can do. Just kidding. Sorry. I'm having trouble here. Okay, so the second thing is, how do we interpret that? And some people have said to me, like, Nick, where do you think we are? Like, and, I'm, and, and I say to them, dude, I've been here six months. I have no idea. I'm just preaching. But <clears throat> here's what I tell people when they demand an answer. I say, I think, we're, I think we're still definitely in a season of preparation, but I feel like we're kind of out of the holding pattern. I don't know if that's a helpful distinction for you, but a lot of what I heard from when I talked with people when I was, we were planning on coming here and so on was that the church has just kind of been in a holding pattern. We're just kind of— things are getting better, but we're just kind of— and, um, and I don't think we're in a holding pattern anymore. I think we're doing what we're doing. But I, I still think we're preparing for what we're going to be doing. I don't think that we, we've been formed into the kind of unit that God is going to form us into for what he's going to use us for. And because of that, <clears throat> there's two things that I want to say. One is, I don't have some five-year vision for you guys. I'm, I'm not vision guy. I'm not vision guy. And I don't apologize for that because— Normally, I want to beat up vision guy, and I don't want to beat myself up. But here's what, here's what I'll say. I think at this point in where we are, a one-year vision is plenty for preparation. So here's what I want to do. I basically want to make <clears throat> two challenges for us for just this year, okay? So I want to just challenge you on two things for this year. The first is— um, I want you to accept my challenge for you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the, the first is, I want to challenge you um, for us all to spend a year in the gospel without having a bad attitude about it. Um, I, I believe that for us to be really prepared for what God will ask us to do in the next 10 years, we need to be so grounded in the gospel that it's in the spiritual marrow of who we are. And I have never yet spent a time at any church that that was completely true of. In most churches, it's abysmally true of. And I do not believe we can be what we need to be unless that's true of us. And so, <clears throat> I want to spend this next year really, really, really focusing on the gospel. Um, I'm going to preach through Mark, which at the pace I'm going, that'll be all we'll do. Um, <laughs> Uh, for, for most of the spring, we'll, we'll be in Mark, and Mark is just all about the gospel. And then if we have time, we'll do a, a short series on Galatians, which is all about the gospel. And then in the fall, when we get— we, fall, I'm going to ask you all to do a spiritual growth campaign together on a study surrounding the gospel, where we virtually stop everything else we're doing. We all focus on this one study for about 10 weeks and focus, 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 focus on working the gospel into all of our life into every facet, every area, every feeling, every way we think about the different things that's all framed by the gospel. And I want to tell you a couple of reasons why that is, because I know there's some people who are like, listen, Nick, I've been a Christian for 30 years. 
um, I think we can, we can move a little forward. But listen, I, I, want, I want to explain a little bit of the reasoning behind the madness. Um, <clears throat> so here's some quick reasons. One is that we are programmed to forget the gospel. Okay? Our, everything about us is programmed to be self-centered versus God-centered. And we're programmed to think in, in categories of either pride or fear, not thankfulness and joy. Everything about us is wrongly programmed to think the opposite way of the gospel. And so people used to—I think I've said this before here, but people, people used to ridicule Martin Luther, and they say, Brother Martin, why do you, every week we come in here, every week you just preach the gospel. And he said, well, friend, my, my beloved friends, it's because every week you walk out of here and forget it. You know? Um, one of the things that I'm going to be doing this year is I'm going to re- basically relearn how to be a physical human being in the world. Um, one of, two of the things that have been catching up with me for more than a decade are my poor ergonomics and posture and my wrong speaking voice. I, st- I talk wrong. I speak from my throat instead of my guts or whatever, and it's, it's already starting to ruin my voice, and I will not be able to preach for 30 years if I don't do something about it pretty soon. And I went and got my throat scoped just this last week and have made my appointments for, so, for vocal therapy or whatever, and I'm going to learn to pronounce vowels again or something. I don't know what yet. Um, and I'm never going to sound like Greg Walters, but— um, <laughs> But listen, some things have got to be done, and, and sometimes you, ha- you cannot just say, listen, I'm already trained this way. I'm not going to fight against my nature. I'm just going to accept reality. Well, listen, I don't, I don't want to accept the reality of an arthritic back and neck at 55, and I don't want to accept the reality that I'm not going to be able to do what God's called me to do for the long haul. So I'm going to have to figure out a way to commit to the discipline to unlearn everything I've learned about how to sit and type and talk for 33 years, and I'm going to, learn to, do, I'm going to have to learn to do it a different way, and that's not going to be easy. But friends, that's, and that's what the gospel is like. It's that kind of relearning, and we just don't have it. And we, we have to— we have to really, really focus again and again on it to really have it. The second thing I want to say about that quickly is, listen, the gospel is the only thing unique about us. <laughs> it's, it's all we've got. I mean, it's the only thing unique we have to say as Christians. And if, and if we're not absolutely grounded in the gospel, everything we say on top of it is just going to be wrong. It's just going to be weird, and people aren't, people aren't going to be moved by it because they're not going to see what it's connected to. Also, the gospel is the only thing that can keep us from either becoming lawless and just be like, well, we can do whatever we want, or legalistic. It's the only thing that can keep us seeking holiness with humility, full of joy and thankfulness, without either being fearful of God's wrath when we fail and arrogant towards everybody else when we succeed. Churches are constantly falling into either the New, the new way to be arrogant, or if they're falling into the new way to just talk about how to feel better, having nothing to do with obeying and following Jesus the way he asks us to. And there are, you, there are churches all over the country and all over the world <clears throat> that really are just about <clears throat> how Jesus can make you feel better. Don't worry about his, his loves or his pleasures or his glories or his mission or his—right? I'll give you seven ways— to heal your marriage, and five ways to be more time efficient, and six ways to—and that's what we'll do. And it'll just be about you feeling nicer. Jesus is there for that. Or, on the other side, it'll just be the new way to be arrogant, right? The old way to be arrogant was, you know, don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. The new way to be arrogant is your worship isn't cool enough, or your whatever. 
But there's, there's always a new way in the church to be arrogant, and we will fall into it. And if we're not careful, we'll do both at the same time. We'll find a way to be totally lawless, completely self-righteous, all at the same time, and think that we're doing Jesus a fantastic favor because we're pretty dang hip. And, and we'll, just, we'll just be in a whole heap of trouble, and we'll be miserable people. We'll make people miserable, and we'll be miserable because there, we are constantly moving towards lawlessness or legalism. Constantly, and only the gospel can ground us in a way that will produce a kind of thankfulness and joy to produce the obedience and sacrifice that the Bible calls us to, but the kind of joy and happiness and openness to others that throws away the, the judgmentalism while still remaining morally serious. Only the gospel can do that, and we need it badly. And lastly, on this bit, it's the only thing that can keep us together. The gospel's—listen, um, th- this is the way we do church in America. There's 60 churches in town, and they all care about different things, and you go to the one that cares about the thing you care about. Okay? That's how we do it. So if you're one of those Christians that really cares about prayer and worship, well, you've got to go on over to the charismatic church, and where they pray and worship a lot, and loud, and with flags. And if, you, and if you're really into evangelism, then you, you know, you go over to the Willow Creek Association Church over there where all they do is seeker series. And if you care about discipleship and Bible study, then, you know, you go over to that Bible church over there that, you know, Sunday school is five times as long as the sermon. And then if you, you know, if you really care about justice and peace in the world and development and so on, then you go to that liberal Protestant church down the road and where they send food to Africa and they have a— a battered women's shelter, and if you care about cultural renewal, you go over there to that church where all they do is talk about, you know, analytical Christian philosophy and apologetics. And we'll just all go where we—they do stuff we care about. And so what happens is you get this terribly splintered churches where people's personalities aren't completely formed around the gospel, and we're all going in different directions, and we're all self-righteous towards each other. We all believe that the other people aren't balanced, you know? It's like the old conversation where Lexi and I sit at the table, and I say, Lexi, I think you and I are the only two balanced Christians in the whole world, and frankly, what you did this afternoon makes me worry about you, you know? <laughs> and, the, and the fact is, is that the only, what, the only thing that can keep the evangelism people together with the discipleship people in the same church, sharing the same budgets, walking down the same halls, having to schedule the same rooms— is if both people are so grounded in the gospel that they recognize that their particular passion focus isn't the only passion focus that properly grows out of the gospel. And so the missions people will have to learn to accept the worship people when we would love to send this much money there and yet these people want to buy a new soundboard. Something's got to give right? People have to work together. And the gospel is the only thing that can get these diverse people working together. Because what happens when we splinter out on the, in these ways is we take all the power out of the church. The, one of the glories of the church is that God cr- takes people who are good at many different things and brings them together in a properly functioning unit with all the abilities that you actually need. The minute we split based on our sub-interests after the gospel, we destroy how the gospel is supposed to build churches and make them strong. So the only way we can be a church that's great in worship and prayer and missions and cultural renewal and justice and, 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 is if we're so grounded in the gospel that if I'm really passionate about Bible study and discipleship, I still know deeply to be humble and care about my brother who said, who wants to have a prayer meeting for six hours every day. 
And to say, you know what, that's really important too. And really believe that, not just say it. And only the gospel can do that. So, here's my challenge for that. Be here. Because I'm going to do it. (laughs) So my challenge to you is be here. If you come once a month, come twice a month. If you come twice a month, come three times a month. If you come three times a month, come four times a month. If you come four times a month, you already come all the Sundays there aren't a month in most months. But, but think about this. Maybe it's time for you to do second hour. And listen, you, listen, you don't have to, you don't have to marry these things. Look, listen, just say in your family, hey, we're going to go to church every week for three months and see what happens. We're going to go, we're going to go, we're going to stay second hour at the church for two months and see what happens. Just give it a shot. And when the fall comes and we do the spiritual growth campaign, be there. Do it. The second challenge I want to make—oh, that was my cheeky slide for the Delta effect. I'm sorry. The second challenge I want to make for you is um, to prepare to be generous by becoming financially free. Um, And listen, I don't know how to talk about money diplomatically, okay? I have no idea how that's done. I've seen people do it. I don't know how they do it. I go, wow, that was really diplomatic. I I don't know how to do it, okay? So I'm just going to be direct with you, okay? Um— High Point Church is a generous church by any metric. So it's a little weird that this would be the challenge. Um, Not only that, High Point Church is a solidly evangelical church. And um, evangelicals are the most generous givers in America. Um, Oops, that was a bunch of slides there, didn't it? Um, And some of the stuff I'm going to quote for a second came from a book by Christian Smith called Passing the Plate. It's published by Oxford University Press in 2008. One of the things that it looks at is um, giving across the board. And among evangelicals, the percent of evangelicals who give nothing to charitable organizations is 4.4 percent. It's pretty dang low. When you contrast that with the number of non-religious people who give nothing to religious organizations, or I'm sorry, to charities, it's it's 50.5 percent. Right? That's that's good, right? Check, check evangelicals, right? Um, under, under percent of income given, if you look um, at, this, at the numbers, um, evangelicals give on average 8.2 percent of their income. I'm going to explain why that doesn't seem possible in just a minute, because most of you are like, there's no way. I'm going to tell you just a minute why that's, why that's true, but also not true. But if you look at our non-religious neighbors, it's 0.7 percent, right? Not so fantastic. Um, and if you look at the percentage of evangelicals who so they give 10% or more of their income to charitable organizations, it's 27.3% as opposed to 0.6 of our non-religious neighbors, right? So, you know, we win on that. That's sweet. And if you look at the average annual giving for a Protestant Christian in America, the average annual giving, um, if, you, if you look at the mean or the average of all givers, it's about $1,800. And over the last five, six years at High Point Church, um, our average mean giving family has, has not ever gone below 2700 Right? So we're, a, we're apparently a generous church that's in a generous demographic, right? So why would Nick get up here and say, hey, let's spend, let's spend a good bit of this year preparing to be financially generous by being financially free? And here, here's why. Um, much like the, in the U.S. tax bill, um, the, the reason those numbers look high is because there's a very small percentage of people giving immensely generously. And it brings all the averages way up. So, for example, the top 5% of evangelical givers give 596 of the total gifts. 
if you add in together the top 15%, um, it comes up to 84% of the total gifts. And I looked at the giving for our year-end gifts, and we about track with that. There were five or six gifts that set the pace for the whole thing, and then there were a number of smaller gifts, and a lot of people gave nothing. It's just reality. It's not, it's not good. I mean, it's just reality. That's just where we are. It's who we are. That's how people are. And listen, it's not that all kinds of people are—they're all, they're all bad people. That's not it. There's a very clear sociological phenomenon called the tragedy of the commons, and that is that people will always do the least possible amount of work to gain a benefit that they can't be excluded from. Right? So if there are going to be roads in Wisconsin, there's going to be roads. Somebody's going to pay for them. The natural human thing to do is to pay as least, least possible because there's going to be roads and nobody can tell me I can't drive on them. It's called the tragedy of the commons. It's well documented. It goes all the way across. Every, just about every sociological study bears this out. And it's just how, it's just how we are as human beings. We function towards our rational self-interest, and that is to spend the least amount of money to get the highest amount of benefits. Right? There's nothing weird about that. There's nothing particularly wicked about that. It's just human nature. Um, but one of the things we believe in the Christian church is that human nature isn't always right. And we, you know, we might have—so so what this means statistically is that though the mean gift, that is if you average all the gifts, the average Protestant giver gives $1,800, when you count—when you take them out and you count it down to the middle gift, what's called the mode in statistics— it's 224 bucks. It's l- much less than 1% of what much, most of our families make. And, um, and you can set your watch by this. The people who give the least, uh, in real dollars, the people who give the least is anybody who makes more than $40,000 a year. And there's a little bump at 90000 So it's 40000 to 90000 that you can bet your bottom dollar will give the least. Guess who that is? That's us. <laughs> Now, so, so the question is, why is that true? Like, I, you know, because that's true of me. And it's not true of me in that I give 1% of my income. I'm a pastor. I cannot get away with that. And I became a Christian at like 16. So I've never seen that 10%. You know what I'm saying? The whole like give, Christian tithe thing where you give 10%. I've never seen that money. Like my first job, wrote that check, it was gone. Then we figured out what we were going to do with the rest of the money. So for me, tithing is just, I just have always done it. And, but here's the thing. I, I don't give more than that. And when people ask me for, for more, I get frustrated. And I get angry at them. And it's not because I feel like I'm giving enough. It's not that. It's, it's I don't have any money for them because I spend all the rest of it. That's what it is. I mean, if you've got plenty of money, just if you've got a pile of money, like if I had a little pile of money right here, and that was your money, right? And somebody came up and he said, listen, there are these little kids, and they're just dying. They're just starving to death. Their teeth are rotting out of their heads. There's nobody to take care of them. They're just dying. Would you give? Would you give to save their lives? And you had the big old pile of money, yet all your bills were paid. What would you say? You'd say, yeah, I'll give you a little bit of pile. I'll give you a little bit of the pile, right? You would. You would do that because— So, so why—the reason we don't give is because the middle-class American lifestyle is a no-margin lifestyle. That's why. We— we live at a certain way as to create no margin, and so we don't have any. And so we go to church, and somebody talks about money, and we get angry because we don't have margin. They're going to ask us for money, and we don't have any. Like, think about this. I'm a pastor. What did I do when I went to buy a house? I found out what 40% of my income was, 
And I decided from that how much house I could afford. I didn't take the number of people in my family and multiply it by a decent amount of square feet. Well, that's why I need this one. No, I figured out what I could afford, and then I fixed the biggest expense in my life based on that. That's, that's idiotic. But it's what we—that's what every—I would bet 98% of us did that. And then we go, well, I can't give because I have all these—I have all these fixed—all these fixed expenses. Yeah, well, we fixed them, most of them. You know? Like our cable bill is fixed. Our cell phone bill is fixed. Our car payments are fixed. Our house payments are fixed. These are all fixed expenses. I mean, how could we expect—well, we fixed most of them. We—I mean, there's certain things like our tax bill or whatever we didn't fix— but, the, but most of our fixed expenses we fixed. So here—and what this creates is a no-margin living where most of Americans are either in debt or living paycheck to paycheck. And, and, and it's killing us. And this has—friends, this has nothing to do with our budget. In fact, here's my first financial challenge to you this year. And I've okayed this with the elders, even though we're all a little nervous about it. I want to challenge you to just give at the, at, the, at, the, at the rate you're giving right now. I don't want you to give any more to High Point Church than you're giving right now. Sit down with your spouse, decide what you're going to give for the year, and just give that. Okay? Period. Here's my second challenge to you. Let's become a people who are not living just just over paycheck to paycheck. Okay, so here's the uncomfortable thing I want to do together. Okay, I've never heard of this being done. I have no idea if this is a good idea. And I have no idea if you're actually going to do this with me. Okay, but I'm—listen. Hey, I hope for the Packers—I hope the Packers do a play that's designed to make 40, 50 yards today. That probably won't work, but let's go for it, right? So here, I'm just going to go for it, okay? Here's my 30-yard, 35-yard pass play. You have this. This slip is for your consumer debt. Consumer debt is anything that is not your primary residence, a degree that you got to generate income, or an approved business plan. Okay? So if you've invested money in a business that's designed to generate income, if you have gotten a degree that you're going to use or are using to get money, income, or your primary residence, that doesn't count as consumer debt. Okay? Everything else counts. I want you to go home this week, and I want you to write it on here and on here, rip it apart, and bring one back and put it in the offering next week anonymously. I don't want you to put your name on it. I don't care who you are. Um, I I want a total for all of us. I want us as a church to total our consumer debt. And then quarterly, we'll come back and find out how much we paid off. And listen, I'm under no delusions that we're going to pay 100% of it off, but let's just see what we can do. Now, that is not going to work by itself because the reason why we're 70% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck and most people are in some kind of consumer debt is because, is because of really habits and stuff. And so what we're going to do as a church is I want to encourage every single one of you who hasn't taken a, a Christian financial planning class to take one um, in the next 12 months. With me, I'm going to take one too. Um, so, so you're exempt from this challenge if you've taken a Christian financial planning course and you're actually doing it. 
okay? You've taken one, and you're doing it. If not, then I want you to take Financial Peace University with me um, in one of the sections that we're going to do. Now, here's why I say that. There's a very specific reason I've picked this course as opposed to the others, and it's because Financial Peace University focuses on the habits and psychological reasons why we get into debt, as well as all the practical uses of money. So it covers all the, here's how much life insurance you should get, here's how you should deal with debt, here's what you do with creditors, here's how you blah, 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 all that stuff. But it also talks about why we get into debt and the psychological reasons that it happens and how to mar- use those to help yourself get out of it. And it includes um, converse, like how to talk to your spouse about it and not get into a huge fight. It includes those very critical things that are not in most classes. And so if you have not taken a Christian financial planning class— and aren't also doing what it says, I want to challenge you to take this class. Next week, we're going to have a preview. There's like a 23-minute video, and, I want, and if you're skeptical about it, just come and listen to the video. If you can't pay the fee to get in, the elders and I are talking with the finance committee about putting together scholarships for you if you can't pay the, the cost of the class. Um, but uh, we're going to start this February 2nd. We're going to have another one that's going to start in May. And two other large churches and towns are running the same course concurrent on different nights and different times. Asbury United Methodist and Blackhawk are both running classes starting in the next couple of weeks. And so if you can't do Wednesday nights, there's at least two other options starting right now. And in May, we're going to do one ABF hour. And my challenge is for you to do this sometime this year. But don't put it off. And don't be too cool. Okay, because I was, when I was at Lynn Haven, I was the pastor. I give 10%. I don't have any consumer debt. And so I was too cool to take, um, I was too cool to take this class. And um, I was talking with my friend Brian Baber, who was a business owner and, and ran the class. And he said, and he said, he said, Nick, you just don't get it. There's so much good stuff in this class. I was like, listen, dude, I don't have any credit card debt. I know what the class is about. The class is about getting out of debt, paying off everything, and cutting up your credit cards. And he's like, no, it's, 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 it's more than that. It's about how these things happen. I was like, okay, well, tell me something I don't know from the class then. Tell me one thing I don't know. He said, okay, have you cut up your credit cards? No, I have credit cards. They're useful tools. I pay them off every month. Okay, do you know that when you buy things with a credit card, even if you have the money to pay it off, you will spend 30 to 35 percent more just because you're using a credit card and not parting with actual money? Like paper bills. You will allow yourself psychologically to spend more just because it's easier. That's why credit cards were invented. I was like— yeah, I totally do that. <laughs> and since then, I, and I know this because I have, I have stepped up to places in stores and not had a credit card with me and opened my wallet and there was money in there and I would not part with it. I was like, you know what? I don't need this. I just need this here. It, I know that's true and that helped me. And I, and, and I, but I had that, totally had that attitude. I'm just telling you, listen, don't be too cool. This can, the average person who takes Financial Peace University pays off $5,300 in debt and saves $2,700 while the class is running. It's, it's an extremely helpful tool. It will be so worth your while. And if you haven't taken a Christian financial planning class and aren't also doing what it says, then take this class with me. Because listen, I have a new budget, six months, first time I've owned a house. Listen, I need to get a handle on all this stuff right? 
And most, most Christians, even if you're pretty good with your money, have never taken something like this and imagined what it would do to us. It, okay, and listen, this is—I want to tell you why I'm doing this. Um, I was riding in a car with another pastor in town who you'd know his name if I told you. And um, we were talking about this class, actually. And he's like, do you like Dave Ramsey? I was like, you know, I really don't want to. But then when I watch his videos, he's just really—I just really like him. He's like, me too. I just really didn't want to like him. Anyway, but he said—he said, like, he, we started talking about financial giving, and he said, I, he said, I listened to this talk by Andy Stanley. This is what Andy Stanley said. He said, I wanted my church— to give generously because I wanted us to accomplish some great things in the world and I wanted to celebrate with that with them. I wanted them to lay on their deathbed and to look back at the run they had at their church and to say, I was part of something great that God did in my generation. And I want them to feel that way. But he said, I realized that my attitude was actually still wrong. Even though I wanted to lead them to do something amazing in the world and lead people to faith and change people's lives all over, the, all over the world, he said, I realized it was still the wrong attitude because it wasn't really about what they could do for the church, which was how it came off, but it was really about what could the church do for them? I mean, in what sense could we act lovely? And he said, I realized that people weren't financially free. They were terrified. Everybody was three to six months from, from financially imploding, and people were scared, and it really had very little to do with how they could resource my church. It had everything to do with, could I do something for them? And listen, I think everybody in here knows next year I'm coming after this extra money, okay? I think we all know that, right? <laughs> like, I'm not— I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm just assuming that's so obvious that I don't even have to say it. And, and, I, and I still don't want—I'm even going to tell you. But see, then it'll be your choice. You see? If you, if you free up $1,500 of your income every month to do whatever you want with it, then it's up to you what you do. You can pay your house off early. You can get a nicer car. You can, you can do whatever you want with it. But listen, there's no chance of us having financial peace personally or being generous corporately. There's no chance unless discipline comes in first. You cannot be generous until you spend a season of discipline and wisdom preparing to be generous. And I want to challenge you to spend this year with me doing that. Let's prepare to have that possibility. Let me end with two quick stories that the kids will love. In, um, I have a slide for this. In, um, 1096, there was a guy named Peter the Hermit. And uh, Urban II had, had called for the First Crusade, and they thought it was a good idea to go and fight to um, liberate Israel from um, the Islamic armies that had, t- had taken control there. And Peter the Hermit went all over France and the Rhineland um, telling people to go and fight on the First Crusade. And um, some people have estimated the number of people that responded to just this one monk's preaching is actually in the hundreds of thousands. He himself led a detachment of about 40,000 people, and the First Crusade had, had about a million actually go. Very few of them actually ever got to the Holy Land, but a lot of people signed up. And um, Peter the Hermit only got about 30,000 of them actually to Constantinople. And he got a little further than that, and they lost one battle. And then they heard that there was actually an, an opening at the city of Nicaea, which was where the first ecumenical council was held. It was, like, it was kind of a big place to take. And they thought, oh, we'll go take that. Well, it was a trap. And um, they, were out, they got caught out in the open plains, and um, part of the Turkish cavalry came in and just wiped them out. I mean, they, they, um, 
they say that the pyramid of the, the first crusade pyramid of bones was multiple acres stacked higher than a than a person. They just stacked up tens of thousands of these men and women who had gone to fight a war without becoming soldiers and without being led by a hero. And I remember reading that like seven years ago and realizing that vision isn't enough. It's just not anywhere near enough. In fact, it's not even the most important thing. I mean, you got to kind of know where you're going, but preparation and heroic leadership are more important. They're just more important. There's another story that I read to you at the beginning about David's mighty men. The, you know, the thing that was notable about David wasn't that he was the, he was the richest king or he was like— the, the thing that was so notable about David is his was the dynasty of heroes. I mean, you read the whole story of David, right after even his final words, it ends with, and these were the heroes of the days of David. And there are friends, there are lists of them. There's the three, then there's the five, then there's the 30 mighty men, and then there's all these other groups that support him, all these people who gave to the final building of the temple, and all this. There's tons of them. There's just heroes upon heroes upon heroes. And I've tried to coin this term, um, and I talked to the men's group about this, called the barley effect. That what's— because of the reality of the tragedy of the commons, that everybody will do the least possible amount of work if they can gain something they can't be excluded from. The only way to overturn that is not to heap guilt on them, but it's for some subgroup of people to stand up and be heroes. It takes somebody like Eliezer, when everybody else is running, in a field of barley to go, you know what, I'm not running. Right? That's what it takes. I mean, David was running. But now he can't run. So, I mean, you can imagine David, he's running with that big sword from Goliath on his back. And like Eliezer just stops in the middle of the barley field. He's like, I'm not giving these guys this barley. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna take my head home with them or they're not getting it. Because everybody else is like, dude, let them have the barley. Let's just live to fight another day. He's like, no. No. And so David's like, Crap. You know, and then the other guys, it's, it's, it's probably either just the five or the 30 that stay. Because Second Samuel says all the men of Israel left and they didn't come back except for to pick over the dead bodies. And so they formed some kind of little pyramid. There's hundreds, perhaps a thousand or more Philistines coming in. And these guys like form a little pyramid. Eliezer gets up front and he just starts lopping off heads and arms. And he's like, you can't have it. You can't have it. Can you imagine me like the 60th guy? <laughs> So these are all—you've killed all these people. Well, bless you. You know, like—can we—can you imagine? I mean, there's just got—he's got to step over people to get at the new ones, right? But—but—but they—but they fought together because in 1 Chronicles it says—it doesn't just say it was Eliezer. It says they took their stand, meaning, yeah, the peasant farmers of Israel left because—why? Because they weren't prepared. They hadn't become warriors. They didn't have the guts to stand. But these men had fought, and they had fought, and they had fought. And when one of them turned and said, I'm not running, they all were like, all right, well then me neither. And they stood up, and they fought, and they brought about a great victory. Because if everybody had fallen to the tragedy of the commons, it, they would have failed. And see, that is the issue with the church. The gospel is not— 
It is not something that fits human nature. And we, if we allow the tragedy of the commons to govern the way we live, we will accomplish nothing. Therefore, what is necessary is not just a vision. What is necessary is heroes. What is necessary is people who have the courage and the discipline to not care what everybody else does, to not care if all the other parents volunteer in children's ministry as much as they do, or not care if everybody is giving at the same percentage as they are. Or not, they don't care about that stuff. They say, I'm not giving this ground. This is the fight Jesus has called me to fight. We have a mission. I'm pulling out my sword, and will you please fight with me? And if you don't, I'm still fighting. We don't need a Peter the Hermit to come up here and go, Hey, high point, we're gonna blah, 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 blah. And we're gonna, and everybody goes, yeah, and we have a like, little exciting time together. No, what we need is a band of heroes. I don't want a kingdom like Solomon's, where his son has to say, well, we're gonna build more, and if you don't, I'm just gonna whip you harder than my daddy. I want us to be a church like the kingdom of David, that you, it was just full of heroes. It was just full of men and women who had fought together and believed together and stood together and they had the courage and they had gone through the preparation to be ready to do it. And they just didn't care if they were in the top 15% and had to shoulder 85% of the load. They wouldn't have it otherwise. And so my pledge to you is, I will never do less than you. I will never walk shorter from my parking space. I will never give. In fact, when, when Greg Walters get up there and told us that he was going to give like a tithe or double tithe or something, for, I was like, well, we're not letting him beat us, baby. <laughs> I will never do less than you. So fight with me. Stand next to me this year. Let's spend it in the gospel. Let's spend it putting ourselves in a position to be financially free. And let's be faithful in this season of preparation. But let's spend today being glad that we've seemed to have turned a corner. Let's pray. Father, we pray that, um, that you'd help us to be the kind of church you want us to be. We know that, um, that we're not trying to earn your approval, Father. Let the gospel sink into us, recognizing that you have first saved us. But God, let the joy and the thankfulness of that so motivate us to have courage to take, that, take on the mission you've laid before us. And we pray that you would make us a people free of the idolatry and the slavery of our moment in time, that we would become financially free, that we would throw off the shackles, that we'd pay off some of our debts, and that we would free ourselves from that. We pray, Father, that we would even more become a people of the gospel, that the, the logic of Christ first loving us and us pouring out our love in his name would get down to the very marrow of our spiritual bones. And I pray that out of that, you would create a generation of heroes in this church that would stand up and live and, and feel at the end of their life that they were part of something, a great, a great run of what you did in their generation. And Father, just like it says at the end of that verse in First Chronicles, where it says, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. We pray that in that time we would be so focused on your gospel as to know that whatever we tried or did with the courage and discipline you built in us, that it will only ever be a great victory that you have brought about. We pray in Christ's name.